Go ahead and take your Bibles and flip to Colossians 2. Colossians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 16 through 23. Uh, Lord willing, next week on Christmas Day, we're going to look at uh, uh, Mary's song, the Magnificat. We're going to look at that a little bit for our gathering next week and uh, looking forward to that and celebrating Christmas together. But tonight we're going to continue in Colossians 2, Christianity and We'll explain that in a minute, but let's stand for the reading of God's Word together. Colossians 2, verses 16 through 23. These are the words of God. Therefore, no one is to judge you in food and drink, or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, going into detail about visions he has seen, being puffed up for nothing by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, Why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees? Do not handle, nor taste, nor touch, which deal with everything destined to perish with use, which are in accordance with the commands and teachings of men, which are matters having to be sure a word of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Let's pray. Our glorious Father and Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us grace to receive your truth in faith and love, and grant us strength to follow the path you set before us through Christ Jesus our King, and amen. You can be seated. I mentioned last week that Christians do not worship anything in the created order. Indeed, they should not. Christians, true Christianity does not bow before anything in the created order. To worship something or someone is to pay obeisance, and this is something reserved for God and God alone. When the world and all of creational law is divorced from God, or at least there's an attempt to divorce uh, ourselves from God's law, the supreme, the problem becomes the creature is worshipped instead of the creator. And that's the dynamic in the Apostle Paul, his work in Romans chapter 1 as well. So we call this idolatry. We call any sort of worship of the creation idolatry. And as mentioned last time, we used the example of the New Age movement. And that is, of course, immersed in this type of thinking, thinking that the so-called natural realm put that in air quotes, the so-called natural realm is to be elevated to a position of supremacy. So you think, remember last week we talked about monism, all is one. You have this belief that all is God, this deism, pantheism, um, God is everything, everything is God. And then you have mysticism, which tries to get you to experience that unity, that divine monad. And that is kind of what we have marching around and parading in the streets right now. But the central focus of worship for the Christian, to the contrary of that, is not the world or anything in the world, but the Lord Jesus Christ himself, his person and his work. Worship is obedience to Christ in all of life, not just talk about Jesus. 
There's a difference. Uh, think of James, you know, show me, show me your faith. <laughs> show me the veracity, the truthfulness of your faith. So everything, when it comes to worship, it's Christ. Christ in everything, all of Christ for all of life. Everything is concentrated and built on Him. He is that foundation. Christianity itself, we could call it, uh, Christianity is a religion of Christocentrism. <laughs> that means Christ is at the center of everything, and He is the center that deals with everything else. He is at the center, and He deals with everything that goes on at the periphery. You could say it this way, Christ is the focal point. When we think of Christianity, Christ, it's in the name, right? Christianity. Christ is the focal point. He is the center. He is the foundation of everything. Whether approaching scientific inquiry, uh, ordering a society, or even organizing your own homes, organizing a family, doing business, doing finance, whatever it is, all of it is supposed to be centered on Christ the King. Everything deals with Jesus because Jesus deals with everything. That's how the whole thing is set up. To be sure, it is not as though unbelievers are incapable of doing economics or banking or buying good gifts for their unbelieving kids on Christmas. It's not that they're incapable of such things. It's that they're doing so apart from the worship and service of Jesus Christ, which means that rather, rather than building the kingdom, they're in fact building their own graves. Grace upon grace in one's life. Grace upon grace should move us to faithfulness, should move us to gratitude and service to King Jesus, not further disobedience and then self-worship. One, the, one of the great dangers that rears its ugly head from time to time is what C.S. Lewis called Christianity and. Uh, and I, I borrowed this from his book, The Screw, Screwtape Letters. You may have heard of it before, but Screwtape wrote, wrote the following to Wormwood, and it'll give you insight to what I think Paul's getting at here. Uh, Lewis says, quote, the real trouble about the set your patient is living in is that it is merely Christian. They all have individual interests, of course, talking about Christians, but the bond remains mere Christianity. What we want if men become Christians at all, remember the screw tape, one of the, one, uh, the devil speaking to the demons, that sort of insider talk there. What we want, what the demons want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in a state of mind I call Christianity and. He goes on. You know, Christianity and the crisis. Christianity and the new psychology. Christianity and the new order, Christianity and faith healing, Christianity and psychical research, Christianity and vegetarianism, Christianity and spelling reform. If they must be Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. Work on their horror of the same old thing, end quote. I'll explain that. The Christian faith doesn't need any conjunctions to validate it. There is no Christianity and. I'm a Christian and something else, fill in the blank, that is elevated to supremacy alongside the Lord Jesus. Christianity, it stands on its own two legs. It doesn't need anything. 
doesn't need any crutches. It doesn't need any more coloring. The key sentence in this particular quote here is this. If they must be Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Interesting. By all means, be a Christian, but be a Christian and something else. That same old thing, that Christianity, it's not good enough, right? In, in the, in the, be a Christian with a twist. Be a Christian with some embellishments, uh, some sprinkles on top. Put a nice cherry on top, you know? In the mathematical aspect of life, it sounds like this. Jesus plus something equals life. Jesus plus something else equals serenity or bliss. Rather than taking Christ on his own exclusive terms, the Christianity and doctrine ties something else to it. It adds more color. It grants a subtle difference. And all for the sake of making sure that the same old thing, the same old thing is, is Christianity straight with no chaser, that sort of thing. Just take it as it is. Well, the same old thing is boring. Christianity is just boring in and of itself, right? It's, 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 it's muted. It's unpalatable. You have to add something to it. Put some extra sauce on it, a little hot sauce to add it to your recipe. Christianity and fills out the edges a little better, giving room for me and Jesus, which invariably becomes a Jesus of one's own making. If you've ever caught yourself saying, well, I like to think of Jesus like this. In my imagination, Jesus is this way. <laughs> That's Christianity and. Self-made religion the devil finds pleasurable. Now, Paul deals with these dynamics in our passage, so let's consider our text here. We're told here in verse, uh, verses 16 and 17 that we ought not to let anyone pass wrong judgment on us, particularly as it pertains to diet and days, food and drink, or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Calvin uh, writes this, To judge means here to hold one to be guilty of a crime or to impose a scruple of conscience so that we are no longer free. He says, therefore, that it is not in the power of men to make us subject to the observance of rights which Christ has by his death abolished and exempts us from their yoke, that we may not allow ourselves to be fettered by the laws which they have imposed. End quote. Brilliant comment. In other words, let no man bind your conscience. Let no man bind your conscience. Only Christ and his word should, can and should bind the conscience. This sort of conscience-binding legalism is deadly, Paul says. It's deadly. The heart of legalism, listen, the heart of a legalistic fervor is Jesus at the outer edges. Jesus not at the center, but at the periphery. Jesus shoved out for the sake of whatever I would like to establish. That, that is a problem in legalism. We've been talking about the Colossian heresy. It clearly, the, the Colossian heresy clearly had some level of Jewish legalism present within it. Here, Paul brings up diet and days. What you eat and what days you consider venerable, something you should, should venerate and, and keep holy. And those things were a big deal. Food and festivals. Think of it like that. They were all, according to Hebrews, they were all shadows. And he says as much in verse 17. These, these are the main focus items here. Abstention and, and observation becomes the center, not Jesus. I'm going to abstain from all of these, and I'm going to observe these sorts of festivals and days, 
and that is going to be my Christianity and. I want Jesus and, in Galatians, I want Jesus and circumcision. Uh, and I, I want Jesus and all of the shadows that Christ has come to abolish. Scrupulosity hopes that if we drill down deep enough into the minutia of abstaining from this and observing that, that one will strike the oil of righteousness. Being scrupulous about those things was, of course, part of the Colossian her heresy, and Paul says not to go there. Now, I've got to deal with one thing, and I'm going to try to do, it's a complicated topic that we can't spend hours on, but I'm going to deal with the Sabbath thing in a second, but the Old Testament had three main categories for days. You had first annual festivals, and these were, of course, annual, nearly, something like Passover, uh, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, first fruits. You had annual celebrations. Some of it was tied to the harvest. Some of it was a memorial, remembering the escape from, from Egypt, be, the Passover being that. Uh, so you had annual festivals. You also had monthly celebrations. Uh, you can go and look at Isaiah 113 later. So you had some sort of monthly, um, often tied to the calendar, monthly celebrations. And then the third category was uh, weekly Sabbath days. And the weekly Sabbath, it was interspersed throughout the calendar. Oftentimes the Jews would have in their festivals extended Sabbath celebrations. So you might, around Passover, have Sabbaths on the front end, the back end, in between. There, it was like an extended Sabbath celebration. And that was, again, tied to, it was on top of your normal weekly Sabbath observation. But the problem that Paul says here is Christ is the fullness of the feasts. He's the fullness of Sabbaths. He's the fullness of, of festivals. So that's why um, it's fine to learn about this Passover Seder meal, and it's, it's certainly a, a, a delightful thing to kind of see how might that have taken place. Um, but there's a reason that Jesus didn't institute those two things, those two covenant signs and sacraments. We have baptism and the Lord's Supper, but we don't have uh, the Passover meal is transformed into the Lord's Supper. We don't have to go back and then learn how they did, what was the first cup, the second cup, the third cup, the fourth cup. We don't have to get into the Seder meal, into those details. Why? Because those are shadowy things. It's great to learn, it's great to study, but the festivals, and there's a big push for this, especially in Hebrew roots culture or even dispensational culture, there's a push for, to, to celebrate those things. You know, let's get, the, get out the shofar and blow it, you know, before every service. Um, that's not really protocol. <laughs> Those things are, again, fun historical anecdotes. They're great for learning the Old Testament and some of the historical context. Um, but Jesus didn't really tell us to, to do that because those are shadowy things. Christ is the substance, he says here in verse 17. So why worry about food and schedule when Christ has brought it to the cross? Now, a quick word about the Sabbath day and our observation of it in the New Testament, especially it being commandment number four. It's in the Ten Commandments. First, no, we're dealing with a lot of things here, and there's room for disagreement, and that's a good thing. But the, the Sabbath itself transcends Moses. There's a portion of it that transcends the Mosaic economy, and it was instituted at the very beginning of creation. Um, God worked six days, created all things, rested on the seventh. So there's the, the, the rest one day in seven principle is laid down in Genesis 1 first, not Exodus 20, not at the Ten Commandments. So when the Ten Commandments came along, the Sabbath day was governed by the weekly calendar and the lunar calendar in this regard. 
So, the, in fact, Exodus 20 has a certain perspective on the Sabbath that's rooted in creation, and then you go to Deuteronomy 5, and it's rooted in the redemption from Egypt and the Passover experience. So it's kind of an interesting way that, the, that it's applied differently there in the text. But let me say it this way. Certain shadowy ceremonies were attached to the Sabbath in conjunction with festivals. So the, the principle of the one day in seven then looked a certain way in the Mosaic economy. Uh, and these, Paul seems to indicate here, these have been abolished in Christ. And I think that's his point. As far as the Christian Sabbath, though, goes, even, even some of the confessions disagree about this. You can look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, and you can compare it with the Second Helvetic Confession. Uh, there are some confessions that disagree on, is Sunday the Sabbath day? And is it tied to certain things? So there's been, it's not like we've completely sorted out the issue. It's, it's, uh, it can be muddied. But what I think is important, and I think what is clear, we find this in the book of Acts, the early church gathered on the first day of the new creation resurrection week. There seems to be a shift, a tie. In fact, Paul, you remember, Eutychus falls out of the window. He dies. Paul has to raise him. Paul gave a very lengthy sermon, apparently, uh, and it was nighttime. So presumably they met in the evenings because in the Greco world, it was a, uh, a day of, of work. But they seem to shift it as a day of worship and rest. Calvin, interesting, calls it order. He says a, a day of order. So on the Sunday, you are ordering your life a certain way. And again, we can't get into all of that, but I think that's why when, we, when Hebrews says Christ is our Sabbath, Christ is our rest, there seems to be an indication in Hebrews that there remains a Sabbath and that remains in Christ, like Christ reconstitutes the Sabbath principle. So no longer is it the end of the week, it's actually at the beginning of the week. So there's a whole lot there. You know, I, I preached a, a sermon on this at a, at a church up in, up in Hershey back in March. Um, I can point you to that if you want to look, dig into that a little bit more. But at any rate, the main point here is Paul seems to be saying diet and days are shadowy things. And don't let someone come at you with trying to put Christ at the edges of life because if you're not, you're not a Christian, if you're not doing this, if, and these are the shadowy things he seems to be speaking of. And I like to think of it this way. The old church, when we say the old church, we mean the old, the old covenant church, the Old Testament church, the, uh, the old covenant people of God. The old church had its old scaffolding. So the animal sacrificial system, the temple, the Levites, all of those things were like scaffolding as, as time was progressing and God was building his new covenant house. So the new church has Christ. Christ is our house. He's our dwelling place. And we are in him. He's in us, that sort of thing. And uh, the old church had the scaffolding. The scaffolding came down at the cross. That's why the veil ripped from top to bottom when Christ, after he said, to Telestai, it is finished. All of that was, was done. It was a pointer to Christ. Now the substance is here. He is at the center. Now in Paul's mind, those things are from the old order. They're the shadows. Christ is, is the substance. The Greek word there, actually, you could also translate the body. Christ is the body. So adherence to the shadows was a part of the covenant. All of those things were part of the covenant, and they were aspects of covenant faithfulness, no doubt. 
But Christ is the covenant now. He is the one who renews covenant, makes the new covenant. He is the covenant, not the shadows. The priesthood, certain things tied to the land, the seed laws, uh, ceremonially is what usually how we delineate those laws. Those ceremonies are gone. So Gentiles are not bound by such things because Christ is here. The fullness is here. That was the big issue in the church in Galatia. Messiah is substance. He is the body. He is the embodiment of the shadows, the embodiment of the Torah. Syncretism is always going back into slavery. When you try to put Christianity with something, especially whether or not it's a noble Jewish old covenant substance thing, Paul, that's an anathema, he says in Galatians 1. May he be condemned if you preach another gospel that adds something to the cross, that adds something to grace and faith. So in the gospel, love eclipses, eclipses liberty every single time. Whether it's food and how you eat, love eclipses liberty every single time. We dealt with that back in our study in Romans 14. But liberty is not turning your back on Christ. Abstaining or observing in place of Christ is a false gospel. Don't let anyone else tell you otherwise. <clears throat> All food and drink, he says, is lawful, but not everything is profitable. And in our American culture with our current healthcare crisis, much of it that passes as food is actually not food at all. It's uh, food-like. <laughs> they call it that because they put it in a beaker and then put it in a, in a packaging. But all food and drink is lawful, but not everything is profitable, right? Not everything is profitable. What you eat is not a direct indication of your spiritual life. How you eat might be, especially if you're a glutton, but it's not what comes from the outside that pollutes, Jesus says in Mark chapter 7. Now, in verses 18 and 19, we have yet another metaphor and yet another warning. Here, Paul urges the Colossians not to be, quote, defrauded. Note that word in verse 18, defrauded. That is, while running the race, don't let anyone act as an umpire to disqualify you or deprive you of the prize. The prize being what is yours in Christ. Don't let anybody get in the way of that. You're running the race. People, the world's going to try to get you to stop running throw every impediment in the way, don't let anyone try to disqualify you don't, or defraud you. Don't let anybody do, anybody do that. False beliefs and philosophies about life in God's world uh, would defraud us. That is, they, they rob us of the treasures that we have in Christ. In Colossae, the young church dealt with issues surrounding self-abasement. Um, and that word really means a false humility. And this consisted of bodily restrictions with the hope of experiencing visions and ecstatic experiences. This is like Jewish legalism meets this pagan mysticism, and it collided there. And the goal was, if you can, if you can restrict your body a certain way, not eating certain things, perhaps even literally beating your own body uh, with a whip, you know, then maybe you'll get to the point where you'll have these like, extra body experiences. And uh, Paul condemns this nonsense. And many of these, by the way, many of them gave themselves to the worship of angels. You might wonder, why did Paul bring up angels here? It seems strange. Well, angels gave the law on Mount Sinai. So Jewish legalists and mystics, they worshiped them above the living God, seeing them in, in some supreme mediatorial position. Uh, favor from the angels, 
that was believed meant tapping into some blessing. That, that's kind of how they thought of it. Special knowledge, this Gnostic special knowledge acquired from these practices could, so they thought, be a way to experience vision, some, some elevated experiences. Uh, many Eastern mystics do the same sort of things today. But the Gnostic heresy, they, they reduced Christ to a mere angel. He was just a mere angel. And Paul says Christ came in bodily form. He's not an angel in that sense. So he deals with that here. But suppressing the material existence while trying to elevate the spiritual existence, he says, quote, is fleshly. It's fleshly. What does he mean? That is, it's of the sinful nature. And thus it can puff up. He talks about the one puffing up or inflate the mind with air. And uh, that, of course, proves its ridiculousness. So men who are arms and feet but think they're the head of the body are conceited. They're full of vanity. They're, they're full of, of, of conceit and pride. And Paul says in verse 19, though, Christ is the head. We are the body. He, and he alone is the source of all spiritual blessing and joy and maturation. He is sufficient. The Bible says that he holds all things together. So growth and maturity is only going to come from Christ, not despising the material world. Well, if I don't do my... my uh, some people get into this, but they can take something like yoga and uh, they can turn it into this pagan ritual of if I do certain things a certain way, then the gods will align and you know, it can become, instead of simply just stretching your back because you hurt it, it suddenly becomes, from the heart, an opportunity to worship some false, false god and, and get some sort of mystical experience. But we don't despise the material world. Christ became a man to deal with men. Christ took on flesh because the material world belongs to him too. So detaching oneself from Christ, he says, he who is the head, is to deprive oneself of the nourishment that, that it brings to the body. So if you're going to try to have Christ and something else, you've cut yourself off from the head. You've cut yourself off from the body. And to be severed from Christ is to be severed from the church and vice versa. So growth only comes in Christ. Your, your sanctification is only in Christ. It's not in false humility, mystical practices. It's not in any of that. Remember, in Christ are hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, not food and festivals, not diet and days. So do not rob Christ of his headship and dignity. Bad doctrine can only produce bad discipline. So he's dealt with the Gnostics. Here he's dealing with the mystics. The mystics believe God can, can be known through angel worship and visions and these ecstatic experiences. But Paul says that men know God through Christ the head. Now we get to verses 20 through 23. We have a final do not, a warning again. Do not submit to faulty decrees. Do not be subject uh, to worldly religious principles, these aberrant teachings about the world, about God, about knowledge and wisdom, about the purpose of man. Don't, don't go into these elementary principles. Tie this back to what we've already looked at in Colossians. The powers and the principalities have been defeated. Don't let any mortal man try to go and apply for the job. The, the, the principles, these elementary principles were mentioned in verse 8 earlier in chapter 2, but here we see them pop up again. 
some obsession was going on in the Colossian church about these elementary principles, these principles of, of, of creation and materialism and, and, and the body and God's purpose and all of that. There was a, a severe disruption in the church, and Paul deals with it here. And what we're looking at is Torah obedience with mystical worship of angels and ecstasy to boot. It put people in bondage. They became slaves as a result of it. And don't submit yourself to those teachings, he says. The great incongruence is claiming to be in Christ while living in sin. It, it doesn't work, right? How can you who have died to Christ, how can you who has died to Christ and thus died to sin still live in it? That's Paul's argument in Romans. If you died with Christ, if you have taken on his baptismal circumcision, like we looked at last time, how can you give yourself to the elementary principles and forces of the world? And note the word if in verse 20. It means if or since. Union with Christ as the foundation of all doctrine and thus all practice. Union, union with Christ serves as the foundation of all doctrine and all practice. You have been brought into Christ. You're in Christ. Christ is in you. You're the bride. He's the groom. The church is his, 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 uh, his lovely bride. He's the husband here. You've been brought into Christ. You have been, there's a union. Union with Christ may, in fact, be one of Paul's most central doctrines. Aside from the big ones like the Trinity and the hypostatic union of Jesus being fully God and fully man. But being brought in with Christ, that is the foundation. It's the foundation of who you are in Christ. It's the foundation of what Christ demands of you. So submission to shadows and ascetic rules is, is utterly incongruent with what Christ has provided us. So to be dead with Christ is to be dead to will worship and shadow worship. To be dead with Christ is to be dead to the world's way of thinking, the world's way of doing things. The, the worldly regulations and principles Paul warns against are distorted versions of the law of God. Polluted versions of the law of God, oftentimes used as a way to earn a righteous standing before God. And in verse 21, the heretics, heretics in Colossae, they urge something, and you can, it's interesting what's said here. Do not handle probably could be referring to money or, or, or business or economic concerns, right? The worldly stuff. Don't handle. Don't, don't do this. Retreat from the world. Don't handle money. Don't do business. That is bad. Also, uh, you may not want to be associated with certain practices, for that is viewed as righteousness. You refraining from the agora, being in part of the market, that's righteousness. That's what they're saying. And then they say something about taste. Do not taste. Meaning food and drink. Don't consume certain things, otherwise you'll be polluted from the outside. That was the heretical position. If you eat certain things, suddenly, oh no, you're defiled and you're condemned. Oh no, you've lost your standing with Christ. It's nonsense. Do not touch probably refers to touching women. If you look at 1 Corinthians 7.1, you'll see what I mean. It's not good for a man to touch a woman. You've heard it said. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 7.1. That's maybe, in fact, what one of them, uh, one of the, uh, some of the heresies involved there were, were talking about. 
women were lesser beings. They were worse than slaves in the Greco-Roman world. So don't touch them. Don't be involved in them. Stay pure. What we have here are perishable things. He uses this phrase here in verse 22. Perishable things used by perishable men to teach perishable religion. And these rules seem wise. It seems really wise in their own eyes to do this, but it's actually self-made religion. Indulgence of the flesh comes from the heart. When you decide to indulge yourself, whether that's sin, and we'll just, for the sake of argument, talk about sin and what you, you choose to do. You choose to let your go, yourself go there with your eyes, with your mouth, with your heart. It also comes from the heart. But indulgence of the flesh comes from the heart. It does not come from the outside. That was the great issue in Mark chapter 7 about what Jesus said pollutes a man. What makes a man polluted? It's not abstaining from certain things or indulging in certain things. No, it's the heart. Christianity centers on the heart, not on the outside, the heart. And the teetotalers got this part very, very wrong. But to try and eliminate the outside without dealing with the inside is a fool's errand. So we've done Gnosticism, we've looked at mysticism, now we have asceticism. They believed in punishing or depriving the body in order to purify the spirit. Don't eat certain things, don't touch women, and don't deal with the marketplace. That's how you purify your inner spirit, sort of a platonic, dualistic sense. Purify the spirit, deal with the body, and then you'll be free. And that sort of asceticism Paul says, he comes along and says, actually, guess what? We've been crucified with Christ. We're covenantally dead to the law and alive in Christ. And now we are right standing with him and with the law that used to condemn us but doesn't anymore. The Spirit's written it on our hearts. Guess what? That's liberty. That's freedom, not abstaining from things. So these are major issues that the Apostle Paul deals with. And I, I want to reemphasize this. Christianity deals with the material world. It does not escape the material world. It deals with it. Prohibitions against using certain material things as a means of earning some standing, some righteousness, is hereby, ironically, prohibited. That's Paul's deal here. The prohibitors have been prohibited. And this sort of thinking comes from men, he says in verse 23. It comes from men, not God. Listen to Isaiah 29, 13. It reads this. Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their fear of me is in the command of men learned by rote. You can read the rest of it later. Isaiah 29, 13. Their fear of God was in the traditions of men. Even Isaiah saw it back in his day. And Paul deals with it here. They base their entire existence and religious program on human rules and not Christ. When we looked at the Westminster Confession on the Holy Scripture, it's not based on the testimony of any man. The authority of the Bible is not based on the testimony of any man, not even any church. The authority is based on, on God because it is the Word of God. So how shall we then live? The challenge we face as Christians today is the ridding ourselves of evangelical Gnosticism. I put on the back of your song sheet there a little chart that you can look at. 
evangelical Gnosticism. Like barnacles in the bottom of a ship, so Gnosticism has had a grip on evangelicals for quite some time. And what does it teach? Well, first, it teaches that there's a sacred, a sacred secular or a spiritual natural divide. There's this upper story. This is Schaefer's analogy. There's an upper story and a lower story to life. Um, part of this, we can blame uh, Thomas Aquinas. It's partly his fault. He tried to meld Aristotle and Christianity. Um, and, and part of this, though, is modernism's fault, too, with this atheistic revolutionary fervor. You know, think post-French Revolution. But don't miss this. Religiously speaking, Christians are still attached to the nature-grace divide today, separating the world in this way. That's religiously speaking. Politically speaking, we're still attached to the nature-freedom divide. We want autonomy. We want to indulge ourselves and be free to do whatever we want, live your truth. But we're stuck in this world where actually God's law is built into the creation itself. And things just are. You know, there is no such thing as binary. Okay. It's like, you know, there are more than two genders shirts you can buy on Amazon that you have to decide if you want a male or a female shirt. You know, that's the, that's the absurdity of this. You want to be free, but you can't escape it. It's just, it's there. It's built in. It's a built-in feature. Good luck trying to get away. Let me say it differently, too, though. Christians have not done well making sure that they're not being shaped and captivated or judged, defrauded, and disqualified by the spirit of the age. I don't think we've done a good job. The evangelical Gnostic divide, it places God in the upper story along with grace and faith and spirituality and ethics and the theological inquiry, uh, your spiritual disciplines, your prayer time, right? Fasting, prayer, uh, Bible reading, and so on. All of that is upstairs. And guess what? You only go upstairs one day a week on Sunday. Sunday, you get to go to the attic, and God is there. And then in the lower story, we, we have the secular realm, the so-called secular realm, the realm of science and politics and physicality, economics, business, money, art, so on. Monday through Saturday are the days you spend downstairs. And because of this rather egregious bifurcation, <laughs> this world and life view that's it's not a good, good outlook, because of this, though, Christianity has been shoved to the margins. And I just want to say it's our fault. And why is it our fault? Because we've allowed faulty do-it-yourself-at-home religion, which is the spirit of the age, to consume us. This, to bring it back full circle, is the Christianity and problem. The sinful heart, when led by its own lusts and not by the Holy Spirit, will always search for some rule of faith some vision, some experience, some additional content that will hurl Christ to the edges. C.S. Lewis says it like this, but the greatest triumph, this is in the screw tape letters too, but the greatest triumph of all is to elevate this horror of the same old thing into a philosophy so that nonsense in the intellect may reinforce corruption in the will. Oh, that's good. That is good. Stated differently, the goal of the evil one is to make sure that the same old thing, that is undiluted Christianity, pure and undefiled religion, 
The goal of the enemy is to make sure that that becomes horrific on its own, naked on its own, unless it's clothed with something else, something that'll make the intellect busy with nothing so that the will can go forth uh, into whatever suits its fancy. That is a brilliant insight, I think, from Lewis. And this is precisely what evangelical Gnosticism has done, all in the name of Christ. Hear me clearly. Christianity and is not Christianity. A fortified, well-grounded Christianity is a Christianity impervious to false doctrine. It does not need anything else to go with it. We may not invent for ourselves versions of Christianity that suit our fleshly desires, right? There there are no conjunctions here, no additions, no add-ons, no accessories, none of that. You may not invent something on your own. We may not say that Jesus is king, but only over a certain portion of the calendar, or only, he's only king over a certain portion of our time. We may not. We may not say that God only cares about what we have in our hearts and, and not what we, what we do with our hands, or vice versa. Stubborn Christocentricism, as one author put it, is the biblical program. Christ is the center. Christ and Christ alone is the center. He is to be the center of your life, the life of your children, your family, your church, your culture, your job, your world. He is to be the center because he is the center. To adopt the the Christianity and will lead one into apostasy all in the name of wisdom and knowledge. We simply do not need anything else. And that's what Paul harps on here. Salvation is entirely comprehended in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Entirely. Calvin Calvin said that we should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. An eloquent way of saying, don't derive Christianity from somewhere other than Christ. Don't go running to some, something else, someone else. Don't start adding something to the recipe. Don't try and build on some other foundation. And especially don't do it in the name of piety and humility. But wait, well, piety and humility are always correct, right? Wrong. Piety built on something other than Christ is folly. And humility uninformed by Christ is pride, which is to say piety and humility are only as good as the center that holds them together. And if it isn't Christ, it's a phony piety. It's a false humility. Spiritual freedom is freedom in the law, in Christ. The issue in Colossae and the issue we face today as Christians continuing down the path of a radical two-kingdom dialectics is this very issue of freedom. That is the issue. We can look very, very pious, rigorously disciplined in this, that, and the other. But the problem is, without Christ and his law word, without his total supremacy and authority, all of it is just self-indulgence. Look how humble I am. It's like the equivalent of saying that. Guys, I am so humble. Nice to meet you. My middle name is Humility. You didn't know. Look how disciplined I am. Look how disciplined... Paul, Jesus condemns that in the Sermon on the Mount, that sort of behavior. 
Genuine holiness is not contrived by man's machinations. It comes from the Spirit working inside the hearts of people whom Christ has redeemed. Legalism leaves self-righteousness and judgmentalism in its wake. Mysticism leaves pride and self-exaltation in its wake. Asceticism leaves false humility in his wake. That is Paul's argument here. The church must be on guard lest someone try to rob us of the freedom we have in Christ. All in the name of freedom. Our our response should be, well, where else can you find freedom? That's what the disciples said to Jesus when it got awkward with what he said about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Everybody walked away and Peter says, well, where else can we go? Where else can we go? He saw the beauty of Christ, veiled, but he saw it. And he saw the rest of what the world had and said, this is garbage. Where else can we possibly go? People today do not want to be called religious, not even a little. They don't. They don't want to be called religious. They like to be called spiritual. Talk to any college student, you'll find that out very quickly. Let me show you how not religious I am, says the pink-haired feminist with nose rings, a yoga mat, and, and a copy of Confucius, uh, his anal- analects. <laughs> like, what? I'm not religious at all, but my pronouns are. See, religion, you will recall, is all of life lived in response to the Word of God. That is what religion is. And either the heart is directed toward Christ and, and the things of the Spirit, or it's directed towards the self and the things of the flesh. That is the basics of Christianity. All of life must be in submission to Jesus, not just the upper story, the entire house. We, we just have the house. It's a ranch, and it's the kingdom. All right? No basement. You're just in it. <laughs> you don't have to go to the attic to experience God. You're in it. That's the new covenant house. So the heart either takes Christ and only Christ, or it takes part of Christ and something else, and that's what we have to warn against. So church, know what you have in Christ Stand firm with what you have in Christ, and for the sake of Christ's glory in the world, do not add anything to what we have in Christ. He is enough. He is enough. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are are glorious, holy, supreme. You have given us your Son and your Spirit, who are both glorious and supreme, And we are thankful, we are grateful, we are humbled by what we find in your word here. There is so much to man-made religion. It's not altogether different today than it was in the time of the Colossians, but you have given us your word clearly, and we ask and we pray, Father, that you would uh, glorify your Son, that we would be enamored by his grace, that we would find him completely and entirely sufficient because he is. So thank you for this truth. We glorify you now in song in Christ's name. Amen.